This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. This week, I am pleased to welcome a new guest to our AnvaCast, Rana Weber. Rana is the Executive Director of the National Association of State Directors of Pupil Transportation Services. Rana, welcome to the AnvaCast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. That association name is a mouthful. It is indeed, yeah. Even the, the acronym NSDPTS really rolls off the tongue. It does. We affectionately call it NASDIPS, but yes, okay, it NASDIPs, definitely yeah. is a mouthful. Yep. Yeah. People look at us, they're like the AAMV. No, just say AMVA. It's a lot, it's yeah. a lot simpler. So we're Same thing, that. yeah. <laughs> Welcome. So let, let's uh, let's talk about your association and, and your membership being a sister association in the transportation space. State Directors of People Transportation Services is, you know, uh, another name for the school bus industry and those that operate and drive and make our children get to school safely every day. Is that is that an oversimplification? No, it's not, but it's important to understand how they get there. So a state director of pupil transportation can either be with the State Department of Education, the State Department of Transportation, or law enforcement. And all three of those have very different focus in how they approach student transportation. Uh, Law enforcement is obviously the inspection side. Transportation and education are more similar, but obviously you come at it from a slightly different angle if you're one or the other. Most state directors are Department of Education and or next would be law enforcement and then smaller subset is Department of Transportation. But within your state, it's really important to understand where your state director fits and therefore you can kind of understand where their higher priorities fall. And the scope of that state director, does that vary? I mean, where they sit in the state hierarchy, it sounds like might be different. Not different than, say, like the DMV business, where it's not necessarily uniform in terms of the government structure. But in terms of the scope of responsibility for that state director, is that fairly consistent? That's fairly consistent. They're mostly focused on student transportation and coordinating it for their state. Um, Obviously, they're also focused on inspections and training and some of those other parts and pieces of the equation and how that works within their state. But as like every state agency, there's 50 different approaches to every equation. And I'd imagine even more so with uh, pupil transportation, the way education school systems are set up are so varied. Some are very state focused, some are at the county level, some are even more local community clusters. How does that affect the role of a, of a state director, depending on where the decisions are being made in terms of student transportation? Well, you're correct. And then there are even other layers like contracted services. Some states are heavily contracted, Northeast, especially Midwest. There's a lot of contractors. Um, And some states don't have any contractors or a limited number. You also have choice schools and you have things like alternative transportation that's come into the scene as well, which is companies Uber and Lyft-like that provide on-demand services. So there's a lot of different parts and pieces. But even when you zoom back out a little bit and you think about school transportation, it's a difference of home to school for 
for most students who are going to a bus stop and riding a bus and going on to school, or it's special needs service, which is picking up at your home and taking you to school. Um, and it's a student with an IEP, an individual education plan or something like that. So you have very different models of school transportation, and that can vary widely from state to state. But the, the vast majority, I imagine, is that traditional yellow school bus picking up at the bus stop and getting the children to school. It is, but it really, again, depends because some areas, the District of Columbia, for example, only provides special needs transportation. They don't do home to school for any other student. So, you know, it's just a different focus depending upon where you're coming from. Based on those variations and the diversity of delivering the service, as an association, when you bring everyone together, what are some of the more common themes and the common topics that you know they can relate on and you start working on together? So we always have our federal agency partners uh, at our conference, and we were fortunate enough to have Ambo with us at our last conference to kind of talk about those issues. It's a heavily regulated industry, so you have things like anything regulatory that's affecting the industry. We pride ourselves on safety, so anything affecting safety um, and, and really trying to kind of figure out how everyone approaches the same thing differently and what you can learn from each other in order to perhaps take home and think about a new way and a better way to do something in your area. Are there particular high priority initiatives around pupil and school bus safety that you're currently focused on? So our biggest focus at NASDIPS is our legal passing survey. We do that every spring. Um, we put together the information, send it out to state directors, and then they manage it within their state. Uh, and the data comes back to us by the end of the spring, and we put it out, um, the information out right before school starts mm -hmm. is always the goal, August, September-ish. But it's counting illegal passings, and it it sounds like that's pretty simple, but that is a huge problem within the industry. A mm -hmm. child is safest within the bus, but any of that exiting or boarding of the bus, it becomes a concern with traffic not paying attention. Everybody's mm -hmm. more distracted thanks to COVID and potentially putting a child at risk if they're not stopped for a stopped school bus. And how, based on the survey and the data you collect directionally, are we we're we getting better at noticing stop school buses and the paddles going to the side or are drivers getting worse at it? Unfortunately, we're not getting better. Um, we did the survey. Obviously, we didn't do it during COVID, but we did it in 2022. And if you adjusted the, the illegal passings for the school year, meaning 180 days of a school year, we were at just over 41 million illegal mm. violations. So no, we're not getting better. And it, it just points to the fact that we need to refocus and remind drivers about their obligation and their need to ensure the safety of America's school children. In the area I live in, in Maryland, I've noticed it's more standard to have the cameras on the bus to be able to basically do automated enforcement of school bus passing. Is that becoming more common or is that a slower adoption nationally? It just happens to be that I live in an area where there's maybe been quicker adoption. You happen to live in a nice area where they've managed to do it. It's an expense and, um, you know, everything is a choice. And sometimes it's a reactionary decision. You've had an accident or you've had a problem in your area where they want to catch, uh, you know, put the focus on illegal passings. And that's great. The information is critical from those cameras because it frees up the driver to do what they need to do, which is ensure that the children are safe. 
for sure. In order to get a violation, you've got to know, you know, figure out where did it pass from on the left or the right, the make and model and color of the vehicle, the um, license plate information, all of that in order to, to pass that along. And that's a great burden on a driver, even though this is such a critical component of the safety. So it's important to, to recognize that the cameras serve a great purpose, but they're also at an expense. And yeah. some jurisdictions just don't have that flexibility. Now, the other debate that's uh, raged for years around safety and school buses is, of course, uh, safety belts and restraints on buses. Where's the association on that particular topic? Do you, you know, I know there's, there's been pretty vibrant safety arguments on both sides in terms of the benefit of the belt, compartmentalization, and how the physics work of that with younger bodies. So the association believes it's a state decision, a local decision. Again, it comes at a cost. Um, and, you know, you have to make decisions because there simply just isn't the funding to do everything in most jurisdictions. But as long as the state has made an educated decision one way or the other and looked at the pros and cons and all of the sides of the issues, then it's their decision. We firmly believe that and support either decision. Yeah. Now, you talked a little bit about the role of the driver, and we know with all crash statistics, you know, it ultimately more often than not is about the behavior of the driver or in the case of school bus, the behavior of the drivers around <laughs> the, the, the school bus. But, you know, not unlike all paid for drivers, commercial drivers, the industry is has a challenge right now with getting enough school bus drivers. And it was certainly during COVID and beginning of COVID, it was receiving national attention about having just enough drivers to get kids to school. You're right. I mean, it, we have had a significant shortage, but that's nothing new. The extent of the shortage is greater now, but we have had school bus driver shortages over the years for quite some time. Do you find those differences? You mentioned earlier about contract services versus run by counties or states. Any trends in terms of places or structures where shortages are bigger challenges than others? Not really. I mean, it is relatively a low paying job. Um, it's a split shift. So it's a little bit more difficult to accommodate in that regard. But as in most places, you find if a factory opens, for example, or something else that may be a little higher paying job with a bit more stability in terms of hours or length of hours, that becomes the place that takes the drivers. And when commercial driver's licenses, as you well know, you know, once you get trained, you become a little bit more attractive within the trucking or in the delivery, the Amazon business or, or some of those other things. And so it's a little easier to think about shifting around and now, maybe I'd rather have packages than children or, or something to that effect um, and, and think about, well, now that I have this, maybe I become more marketable. We understand that and we're, you know, all of the areas are truly doing everything they can. Um, but again, we think it's a local and a state effort and that it ought to be addressed that way rather than anything at a national level. What works in Arizona may or may not work in Vermont and, and the two, you know, have to still provide school transportation. You know, one of the ways that I think some of the some of the federal approaches to try to address it or help remove a barrier to entry, of course, our community has talked a lot about is what we refer to as the under the hood waiver acceptance that, you know, if, if someone is coming in for that passenger endorsement to drive a school bus, they don't have to worry about knowing how the engine works, what's under the hood, because every system has mechanics and, you know, a system to, to do that. 
was your association involved in that conversation? I mean, I, I know you were, so I'm just trying to, you know, get you to talk a little bit about your perspective on how that's been perceived on your side of the equation, knowing not unlike, you know, some of your other issues, different states have handled it differently. Some states are using that authority and some have said we're not going to use that authority. Exactly. Um, NASDAQ actually opposes the under the hood waiver. Um, we look at it as a safety issue. If you are there on a school bus and driving a school bus, you ought to be fit to serve. And you may be called upon in an evacuation emergency to help children off of the bus. Same thing as going underneath the hood. You should be able to do that. You should be able to ensure that your vehicle is ready to go out on the road and do the pre-trip inspection. You know, contractors and states look at it differently, public employees. In a lot of public cases, the school bus driver is expected to do the pre-trip inspection. And in other cases, there is a mechanic or there's somebody else that does that. That's all well and good, but we want to be sure that that school bus driver, regardless of where they go, is physically able and prepared to do what they need to do to ensure the safety of the school bus. And so have you heard any changes based on those states that have used it, any impact in terms of either driver recruitment on the positive side or unanticipated negative impacts in terms of a driver not knowing what's under the hood? Have you gotten any feedback through your members? There's some anecdotal data out there. I don't really have any concrete data to point to. Um, you know, the um, waiver was just approved in, in October. So it's something that we're keeping an eye on. It was a two-year waiver. Um, so we'll look at it in the coming months and see, you know, if we need to change our position in any way. At the moment, we don't foresee that happening. We still have great concerns with it. We are curious to see how the states adopt it. A few had adopted it when FMCSA rolled out their three-month waivers at a time and um, weren't really seeing a great number of drivers increase out of that. Maybe in a two-year span, they will. But it's also a potential cost for the states to implement. So we're, we're keeping an eye on that too. And as electric buses come down the road, you know, the need for this may go away once more electric buses are in the fleet. So we'll obviously be keeping an eye on it and continue to evaluate. How quickly do you expect that to happen? I think as a outside observer, anecdotally, the, the school bus fleet turnover would be among the slowest of fleet turnovers on, on the streets. You would think um, the Biden administration just provided a billion dollars for school bus uh, replacement in the electric market, and they're looking at doing more in 23. That equates, because of the expense, to about 26, 2700 vehicles. So it's a slow process, but everybody is very excited about electric and the potential that it brings. So uh, certainly something we're watching closely. Obviously, there's potential on electric with uh, cost savings long term, right? It might be more expensive to get the vehicle, but certainly fuel costs for these systems would be would be fantastic. Obviously, the emissions and environmental benefit. Um, is there any safety benefit of an electric vehicle over the way a, a school bus uh, traditionally is a combustion engine? Um, you know, it, it's all still stuff being looked at. There are a lot of different vendors in the marketplace. And so uh, the industry is still really getting its hands around this this issue. I'm not aware of any concerns one way or the other, but it is something that we're very mindful of. 
Yeah, I suppose if nothing else, the, a newer vehicle will also have some of just the newer safety features perhaps already prefabricated in it, whether it's something as simple as the cameras we talked about earlier or driver assistance technologies. Have you seen, you know, we talk a lot in the Anvil world about driver assistance technologies as it relates to passenger vehicles and even some commercial vehicles, but it's usually, you know, the traditional trucks. Um, how have you seen assistance technologies starting to arrive on school buses and people transportation vehicles? Some are coming. Again, it's a cost. And so, you know, when it's like a, um, an a la carte menu, right? There's mm-hmm. all kinds of things you could put on a bus, but pretty soon it becomes a very expensive bus. And so mm-hmm. a district or a state has to make choices in order to get the best value, first of all, but also to ensure that their vehicles have technology they can use. It doesn't help if you have one or two vehicles that have all this technology that nobody understands. So, you know, we want to be sure that anything put on a bus is something that's going to be of value and is going to be used. And long term is something that the school district can actually see some results from, um, either to improve safety or uh, something. And a school bus very different from a passenger vehicle, but Things like the techno, there is technology to ensure you're not leaving a child on a bus, for example. There are vendors that can provide that aftermarket. You know, there there are all kinds of things devoted to student transportation safety in addition to the vehicle options that you could put on the bus. Now, you know, we talked a little earlier about the drivers and the driving process. Is there anything else in the process of a school bus driver getting their CDL that you all have identified as critical pieces or pieces that maybe you would want to see adjusted or reformed. You know, I think we've, we've briefed some of you and your association on our modernized approach to testing some of these drivers that hopefully will really focus on the critical safety skills. Um, anything that's hit your radar that is even more specific to a school bus driver that you, know, you all have been talking about? Not for us nationally. The states decide that. Um, some have additional training or additional requirements, for example, and, and we certainly support their efforts in that regard. Um, it is really needs to be a local state decision for, some, for, for that type of thing to ensure that the, um, back to the Arizona versus Vermont example, right? There are a lot of different weather things, a lot of different needs there that it's important that where you are matters in your training. And, um, you know, we just encourage states to ensure that they've developed enough with um, entry-level driver training. That's obviously set some some minimum standards for the industry. And that's great. Some of those were actually higher than some states had. Some were lower than some states had. So some states still go far and beyond the entry-level driver training. And that's, you know, if that's where they think they need to be, that's great. And that's their prerogative. Yeah. So when we talk about the future of this, the technology, you combine that with the shortage of drivers, um, cost aside for a second, I'm curious, you know, how the climate in your association, your members have been uh, in terms of automated vehicles, because it seems to me on the surface, uh, again, cost aside and even kind of public perception aside about whether it is safer or not. But the idea that a school bus is operating on a fixed route every day that is predictable in terms of where they want to go. on the surface, it might seem that some automation would actually fit that that use case. Again, 
political perceptions aside that, you know, putting our most precious cargo on a bus without a driver there, I get that piece. Um, any other conversations in your community around where automation may meet school bus transportation? Yeah, automation is a concern for us. Um, we don't envision a school bus without a driver on it, just from a behavioral management, but also from a safety perspective. If something were to happen and they need to evacuate that bus, you need an adult with children um, in order to ensure the safety and, and be sure everybody gets far enough away and out of the vehicle, deals with injuries, those types of things. Sure. But in terms of you know other concerns with automation, one of ours is is an automated vehicle. Does it recognize a school bus in its unique operating conditions? It's not a trash truck, for example, in a neighborhood. You can't just go around it. You have to stop. You know those types of things. It's a question we continue to raise, and it seems intuitive. Well, sure, they would have thought about that, but we want to be sure. I mean, we don't want to leave anything to chance with safety. So. So is that some of the conversations you're having with the manufacturers around, like you said, being able to detect a school bus is not a trash truck. And not only is it a school bus, but is it a school bus with yellow lights, red lights, is the paddle out? There's a lot of variables right. that can happen within a very short period of time around a school bus. Absolutely. And it is a question we continue to have, not just with, with the manufacturers, but also with the federal agencies to be sure that the regulations exist to support that. Yeah. Are there other asks that you currently have with the federal agencies? It sounds like you're mostly working with FMCSA, uh, probably NHTSA as well, I would I would imagine. Are there other topics that are uh, top of that agenda? You know, we just continue to keep that door open and have those conversations with them. You know, what are their priorities? Here's where we are. How can we work together? We, we have several federal partners, Transportation Security Administration, the National Transportation Safety Board, Department of Education. There are several really just to keep that conversation continually flowing. So we're all at least on the same page and understand each other. So uh, education and DOT makes perfect sense to me on the surface, but you threw in there TSA. So I'm curious of the TSA linkage since it's an agency we work with quite a bit as well. Right. So motor carrier safety is important to all of us in this industry. And uh, just, again, keeping that door open. Are there any threats? Is there anything we need to be aware of? How can we better work together? What, you know, what partnerships can we form or how can, you know, we encourage that flow of information? What do we need to be aware of type of thing? So I'll, I'll kind of round it back to uh, where, where we started as we start to wrap up in terms of our members, which of course are the, the licensing and the vehicle registration authorities. Is there, is there anything outside of that under the hood exemption topic we talked about in the general licensing process that maybe your members sit back and go, ah, I wish the DMV knew this and understood this about why our school bus industry is different from maybe everything else around motor carriers and large trucks and buses. You know, the big thing I hear about is why do you have to identify the air brakes? You know, some of those kind of things that, that come up occasionally in the testing process that might make it a little easier. Why does it have to be exact wording? Why can't it be a little closer type of of a conversation? You know, we're all in this for safety and we're all in this for minimum standards and, and all of those things, but sometimes we might need to work together a little bit more closely. And, and we're delighted to have this partnership with AMBA to be able to have those conversations. So uh, if there's anything we could do to help in those conversations, feel free to, to call on us. I think uh, we're two associations that maybe have talked a little bit on and off over the years, but not, not nearly as closely as I think we have within the past uh, year now. I would agree with that. And, and, and we're delighted to have that relationship. And obviously, you know, we'll continue that. 
Robert, thanks for spending some time with us uh, today and making our members more aware of your organization. Uh, as our members listen to this and maybe want to learn more, uh, where could they go to? Perhaps your website? Yep, to our website, it's NASDPTS, N-A-S-D-P-T-S dot org. Um, and, and thank you for inviting me and for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you all for listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.